and only won three games. So along came us leftovers when I was a senior, little guys. I was, weighed 156 pounds and I played guard, so you know we were a little team. We were picked to end up dead last in the conference. We had two-a-days that summer were un that were unlike anything I'd ever experienced. I thought I'd join the Marines. It was a very difficult time. In fact, during that season, when the seniors before us were at the helm, first stringers, <clears throat> uh, halfway through the season, we were doing so poorly, the coach decided to make it hell on earth for everybody who was a part of the team, and we had players quit. The practices were so hard, so rigorous. I didn't quit, partly because my dad told me I shouldn't ever be a quitter, and partly because the coach was my driver education teacher and I didn't want to flunk. <laughs> but comes our senior year, we uh, went to a new offense that was in favor of little guys. As a guard, I was pulling almost every play and you, had, you came around the corner and you'd have an angle on the guy you're going to block. And in those days, you could throw roll blocks, and they wouldn't see it coming. These big linebackers would be lumbering to take down our ball carrier, and all of a sudden, his legs were cut right out from under him. We lost one game my senior year. But here's the, why I tell you the story. We got ready to go out and play that first game, and we were lacking a little bit of confidence. We didn't know what, what to make of it. I will never, ever forget what our coach told us, particularly the seniors, because all of us were starters. Tonight, you guys, he said, I want you to go out, relax, have fun. If you play like you have been practicing, you will win this game. And that's exactly what happened. Now, there's another way of saying that. Actually, what he was saying was, if you live up to who I know you are, you will win. Think about it. If you live up to who I know you are, that's a statement of confidence. That bred confidence in and of itself. If you live up to who I know you are, you will win. It's not a pure analogy, but Paul does a very similar thing in the letter to the church at Ephesus. He tells them to stick together and they'll win. Now, interesting, when you read Paul's letters, particularly does this come, come uh, to the front in, uh, in Romans, very obvious in the Romans, but it's also obvious in Ephesians. Paul loads you up with theology. Then he drops the other shoe. He gives you the practical, the application of all that theology. In Romans, he does it. Up through chapter 11, you've got heavy-duty theology. And then you've got, therefore, brethren, I beseech you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice. And three chapters of practical application. What we see in Ephesians is theology, followed by practical application, starting in chapter 4. I want you to listen to the theology. This is who God sees us as. I'm going to do quite a bit of reading here. You don't have to turn to the verses, just listen. <clears throat> Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. 
That's good theology. He's blessed us. Not only that, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Not only that, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. He's not done. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, catch this, that he lavished on us. Incredible. He's not done. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. This is what God has been doing. But he's not done. In him we were also chosen, having been, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. He's still not done. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession to the praise of his glory. Then you go over to chapter 2. And there he tells us that we have also obtained an inheritance. He raised us up with him, fellow citizens of the saints. But he's not done. Because in chapter 2, he touches on this issue, this great barrier that was fixed between the Messianic Jews, because Christianity was born in the cradle of Judaism, and these Gentiles who were pagan and lived like it. And what God has done to remove that barrier. Listen to what he says. Formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision by those who call themselves a circumcision were separated from Christ. You were excluded. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself, Paul says, is our peace. He's made two groups into one. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both, them, both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Let this sink in a little bit. This is incredible stuff, but he's not done. Consequently, you who are in Christ are no longer foreigners, no longer strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him... You too are being built together to become a dwelling place 
in which God lives by his spirit. Isn't this rich? This is all stuff that God did, and we've been the recipients of it. We benefit from it, but God did it. God did it because he's love. God did it because he's full of grace, and he lavished that grace on us. Lofty, lofty stuff. Undeniable explanation of who we are in Christ. Then you come to chapter 4. Now he gives us practical application of how to live out the fact of who we are. The Christian life is exemplified by how the Christian walks. So as we understand this passage before us, we can more fully characterize the Christian life. We can live out the fact of who we are. The walk is characterized by unity. Listen to me carefully. The walk is characterized by unity. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord then, which was Paul's situation, he was under house arrest, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Let me point something out here. Paul affirms the certainty of the Christian experience by citing it as a calling with which you've been called or a calling you have received. This is important. It fixes the idea that salvation has to do with a point in time in history. It's a response to a call issued by God at a past point in time. We don't become Christians simply because of uh, uh, reformation. Becoming a Christian is not not a question of mind over matter. It's an actuality. It's not imaginative. And in response to that life-changing call, there comes this thing of unity and the means of maintaining that unity. He makes us one. And he expects us to maintain this. How do we do it? He tells us how to do it. Thank God he tells us how to do it. He doesn't just tell us what to do. He tells us how to do it. Be completely humble, verse 2, and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Let's look a little more closely at these words. We don't have time to go too far into depth, but these are words just pregnant with meaning. Humility. Be completely humble. When we're humble, we see ourselves in proper perspective. When we're humble, we understand who God is, and we understand in understanding who God is that we're not God. The position is not even open. God will always be God. No one will ever replace him. So we understand who we are in relationship to him. Humility is the result of having a sense of the majesty of God. And he says, be humble. Don't be proud, in other words. Not only is humility a a, a key player here, but also gentleness. Or in the authorized version, meekness. This is an interesting virtue. It's unusual in the sense that it's the perfect combination of two very diametrically different characteristics. It's the combination of strength and at the same time, tenderness. Within one person. Both evident at the same time. In Christian living, it's the spirit in which discipline has got to be exercised. We used this verse last week and it fits very well. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Notice, gently. 
But watch yourself, lest you also be tempted. It's the spirit that makes correction a stimulant and not a depressant. See, when we correct somebody in the faith, it's not that we're just looking for somebody to make mistakes so we can ream them out and leave them by the side of the road. Somebody said the church is the only people they ever knew of that shot their wounded. I don't agree with that, but I can see where it comes from. Because sometimes our harshness is too harsh and there's not enough tenderness with it. So this is the spirit, as I say, which makes correction a stimulant and not a depressant. It's the spirit also in which opposition must be met. Paul says to Timothy, those who oppose him, that is the Lord's servant, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. It's also the spirit in which we give our Christian witness. Listen to 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared for, to give an answer to everyone who seeks you who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. See, you know people, and I do too, their approach to witnessing is hit and run. The more people you offend for Jesus, the better off you are as a witness. That's their attitude. That's not what Scripture teaches. We should be gentle. In fact, if you've sat in on any of the evangelism classes that we've taught, we've stressed this uh, pretty strongly we even ask permission for every step we go with someone and sharing the faith with them. I've shared with you before, not only from here but in those classes, how I do it. It's not the perfect way perhaps, but I try to make sure that gentleness is, leads the way here. Say, there's some principles that I've discovered in my own life that have been very helpful to me. Could I share those with you? I'm asking permission. That to me equates with gentleness. Not jamming and ramming the gospel down somebody's throat. It's wanting the right to be heard and then asking them if, they, if they'd like to know. And having shared that with them, you know, you could have this gift right now. Would you be interested? Would it be okay if I prayed with you? Gentleness. Not only that, but it's, um, it's the spirit which ought to pervade the whole of the Christian life. It should adorn our lives. Remember Peter's counsel to the women who were living with unbelieving husbands. He told them not to be overly concerned with the outward appearance, but to be equally, if not more so, concerned with the inner condition of their soul. He says that should be, uh, uh, you should, you should uh, have a, a I mean, I'm starting in the middle of the context here, and I should have backed up a verse or two, but... Um, you should be characterized as having an unfading beauty on the inside of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. Pretty good virtue, right? Humility and gentleness, they're very closely linked. Humility is a thankful dependence upon God versus pride and self-confidence. Gentleness is a consideration for others even when under pressure versus self-assertion. Humility, gentleness, and then he adds another one, patience. Long-suffering. This is the word macrothemia. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. R.C. Trench says it's a long holding out of the mind before it gives vent to passion or anger. 
It's God giving us a long fuse on an otherwise short temper. It's uh, patience with events as well as patience with people, and it should evidence itself to the place that whether our trial is with a particular situation or with a particular people group or a particular individual, we bear up, and we do not lose our temper, and we do not lose our courage. I think Paul must have had a relationship with other people in mind when he said this, because notice what he follows it up with. Show forbearance to one another in love. Look at it in verse 3. Actually, verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. We're also to practice diligence in preserving the unity of the Spirit. Let me expand on this a little bit. Look at verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What he's saying is we should take care. We should make haste. We should do our best to preserve, to keep by guarding the unity of the Spirit. Probably the unity in us which is inspired by the Spirit. We do this in the bond of peace, in the bond which is peace, which is the result of a right relationship with one another. Some things to observe. The obvious here is this. As believers, we're in unity with one another, not as a result of human scheming, but of God's Spirit. He makes us one. Secondly, the fact that we're to make an effort to preserve unity suggests there are things that would threaten it. Differences threaten our unity. Differences of opinion, differences of uh, temperament, differences in personality, ego, intolerances threaten our unity. Thirdly, we're urged to maintain what God has created. Now, this is very important. He doesn't say create anything. He's not telling us to create anything. He's telling us to preserve what he has done and what he is doing. He's made us one. He'll keep us one. We've got to cooperate with the game plan. That's the idea. And we do that by living up to our potential in that now we're in Christ. The potential indicated in verse 2, bearing with one another in love. It's possible or he wouldn't call us to do it. This echoes similar sentiment that we find in Colossians chapter 3. Over all these virtues, he says, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Love is the perfect bond. It's the cement that binds Christian graces together. Now, fail here, and we fail big time. And we've all had the, heard the horror stories. Maybe some have experienced it, where you're in a church and the wheels seem to come off, and everything just goes awry. If we're not willing to live according to what Paul is prescribing here, let Christ live through us, we fail. Christ has no meaning. The world is not touched very well, or if it is touched, it's touched adversely in the name, for the name of, in the sake of Christ. But succeed, and we make an impact. There's a difference that's made in the life of our mate, and that's where fellowship begins, my friends, at home. There's a difference that's made in our world of relationships. There's a difference that's made in the world at large, not to mention in the ethos of the local church. 
It makes a difference how we live, and we're called to live our lives together in unity. Make every effort to preserve or keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's a uniqueness to this unity. Paul lists seven things here that are cited as illustrative of the unity of the Christian. Collectively, they add great emphasis to the concept of who the church is. Now, this is a tedious list, and I'm going to try to make it simple by keeping it short. But please hang with me, because I think it's important to list these things. The means of humility is, or the means of unity is humility, gentleness, and patience. For a reason, there's one body. One body. Paul likens the church to both a body and a building in Ephesians. And elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he develops the metaphor even more thoroughly. And the thought is that of inherent oneness spiritually in spite of anything that may suggest otherwise. This is ecumenicity born of the Spirit. This is more than just union. This is the result of of um, what the Spirit does, and it's not the result of political maneuvering or concession and counter-concession. Unity is a result of a relatedness which is due to the Holy Spirit. There's one body. You want to know the difference between union and unity? Take two cats, tie them together by their tails, and throw them over a clothesline. You won't see much unity you'll see an adverse effect of having a union that neither one of them wanted. That's the difference. And we're called a unity. Not just union, but unity. There's one body. There's one spirit. Again, 1 Corinthians gives further development. Listen to this. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether bond or free... We're all made to drink of one spirit. Just as the body is one, though its members are many, so the spirit is one, though his gifts and operations are many. Let me take you to the great theologian of the 20th century, Charles Schultz, Peanuts. Peanuts, or Linus and Lucy, Lucy walks in on the scene, Linus is watching TV, and she threatens him. Change that channel. What do you mean change that channel, Linus says. What makes you think you can walk in here and take over? These five fingers, she says. Individually, they're nothing, but when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. What channel do you want, Linus says. And turning away, he looks at his own fingers and says, why can't you guys get organized like that? (laughs) When the church is the church, we are organized like that. There's one body, one spirit, and there's one hope. The unity of the body and of the spirit is equal by a unity of hope, which is the result of being called. Consequently, all believers hold to a common hope. And John expressed it very well. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, 
because we shall see him just as he is. Hebrews says it's a heavenly calling. And it's to be enjoyed by all who believe without distinction. So there's one body. There's one spirit. There's one hope. And there's one Lord. He speaks of Jesus. One Lord. Listen to 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things, from whom are, are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we exist through him. He is the one sovereign over all of life. Somebody says you're an exclusivist because you believe Jesus Christ is the only way. Guilty, because that's what the scripture teaches. There's one Lord, and there's one faith. Now this could mean personal faith. There's one way to God, and it's through faith. Or it could mean faith as a Christian doctrine, the Christian faith. Probably the former is the best fit here. Personal faith. There's one faith because there's one Lord, and that one faith is, in, is faith in him alone as the means of salvation. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Baptism is the outward sign of an inward transformation, which is the result of faith in Christ. As believers are baptized, they participate in a confession of personal identification with with, uh, with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which is the individual statement of faith. Now, it's administered to the individual, not the church. But it's the same baptism. It's administered to each believer, therefore it's one. One baptism. And by the way, if you've been a believer for any length of time and you've not yet followed the Lord in the obedience of water baptism, what's holding you up? This is one of the first steps of obedience to which we're called. Repent and be baptized. You don't need it for salvation. That would make salvation an issue of works. But you need it for obedience. Some people are fearful of being baptized. Well, I'm too sinful. It has nothing to do with your sinfulness. It has everything to do with his righteousness and the fact that you've taken on his righteousness by committing your life to Christ. If you've not followed the Lord in water baptism, get biblical. You don't find faith without baptism in the New Testament. You also don't, don't find baptism without faith. Therefore, I hold to the fact that we baptize those who are old enough to understand what they're doing, those who are put, have put their faith in Jesus Christ. One baptism, and all of us ought to experience this one baptism because we're one body. There's one spirit, there's one hope, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, and there's one God. And Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. This is not new information in the New Testament. We find it in the Old Testament too. Listen to Malachi, if you will. Have not all one Father? Has not one God created us? This is the prophet Malachi. And this is true of both Jew and Gentile believer alike. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he addressed former pagans. He addressed worshipers of many gods. And to them, he said, to us, there's one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we exist for him. Now notice, 
In Ephesians, he says that this God is transcendent. He's over all. He's transcendent. He stands above and goes beyond all that there is. He's infinite in every way. This suggests power and authority and control. This is our God. Through all, he says, suggests pervasiveness. In all, suggests indwelling. Now it seems obvious that the context here makes the all not a general reference to the world, but a specific reference to the body. He is over all in the body. He pervades all in the body. He indwells all in the body. This is a phenomenal statement that Paul is making in these few verses of chapter 4 of Ephesians. And he calls us to live out all that we've become in Christ and do it together. Let's just back off for a minute. Let's make certain we understand this. In this very short passage, focus is brought to bear on how we're to live because of our inherent oneness in Christ. This oneness is inescapable. One church, we've already elaborated upon it, I won't do it again, but one of everything, one body, one spirit, one hope, etc., etc., etc. Question is this What is our attitude toward believers with whom we don't particularly get along? What about the believers around us? What about the believers in this sanctuary? Do we hold grudges? Or do we follow scriptural dictates and go uh, confront those who've offended us? Or hold ourselves accountable and apologize to those we've offended? How do we live life? Is this just theoretical? Or does rubber, the rubber hit the road anywhere at all in our lives? How are we in terms of this thing of unity? What's our attitude toward other bodies of believers? I'm not talking about the apostate church here. I'm talking about those who believe in Jesus Christ. Do we see them as competitors or fellow laborers in the vineyard? What about the larger evangelical body in general? How about missions? Do we see missions as an extension of ourselves, or something that we don't have to bother about because it's miles away? Are we walking as we ought toward other believers with humility and gentleness and patience? Do we show forbearance and diligence toward preserving the unity of the Spirit as it concerns them? This is important business, friend. Wherever there are people, there are relationships. And wherever there are relationships, things can go south. And do you know who will help them go south in a heartbeat? Satan. He wants the church to be destroyed. He would rather have us at least limp if he can't fully destroy us than walk in full stride. But greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. We're not called to limp. We're called to march. We're called to go with God into all this world and make a difference. It takes unity. It takes us living up to our potential in Christ. Not down to our humanity, but living up to what he's called us to be and do. How would Tom Pagel have fared if this had been true? Let me tell you the story. Tom Pagel was running for Isandy County Commissioner, Isandy County, Minnesota. 
The, art, the newspaper did an article on him. They made a mistake. The next week they printed the correction. Here's what the correction was. Tom Pagel has 100% support of his family, not 10% as we stated in last week's article. The guy who wrote the paper had to be from the opposing party, right? How, would it, how do we do if we're walking in 10% unity? Not nearly as well as we'll do if we're walking in 100% unity. That's what we're called to. That's what we're called to. You take one snowflake and you've got something that's very fragile. Let them stick together a little bit and you have something that's very formidable. Let's us stick together in unity in the days and months and years to come and show the world around us what God can do with those who are yielded to him, corporately yielded to him, individually yielded to Christ and individually yielded to one another. How do you unify a church? Well, let me read this article for you. It's from a paper down south somewhere. Former pastor Eric Daniel Harris, 37, pled guilty to the November 1996 arson that burned down the Missionary Baptist Church in Saline County, Arkansas. According to a federal prosecutor, Harris said that he did it because, quote, there was a division among church members and they needed a project to unify them. I want you to know something. We already have that project. And it will unify us. That's the great commandment and the great commission. Because we are one in Christ. And Jesus told us to love our neighbor as ourselves, And he also told us to go into all the world and make disciples. We can only do it effectively as we're unified. So, let me repeat myself. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Things aren't going well at home, fix it. Things aren't going well with you and another individual at church, fix it. Go ask forgiveness, go confront if necessary, do it gently, but fix it. Let's stay together. Satan would have us apart. God has called us to live as one. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It's just absolutely incredible that we can read your word and find ourselves there, not, in terms, not just in terms of our failings, but in terms of our potential. You've blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Help us, Lord, to do all we can to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We thank you for the 100-year history of Elam Mission Church. And we look forward by your grace to the next several years together. As Pastor Matt takes the helm, we pray, Lord, for this church, that you would just bless it and may, it, may its best days be ahead. In the name of Jesus, may we do it together. Amen.